Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And then we will go to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his his heel. The promise of the covenant of grace. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death. On a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Please be seated and let us pray. Our holy God, eternally triune, eternally three in one, one in three, we humbly come before you in the name of Jesus and ask your assistance and your help this morning as we hear the word of God. Please give to us listening ears and let your spirit open up our minds, open up our hearts. And give to us the will to obey and also the desire to share the good gospel news that we will hear this morning. I decrease, Lord, please become more in our lives for your glory. For the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen. Last week, we began our sermon by asking a few important questions concerning the fall of man and the promised covenant of grace that we find in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. The question we asked, you may remember, was God surprised by the fall of man? And was the promised covenant of grace God's reaction to fix the problem of man's sin? Or was man's fall and the plan of redemption Always the eternal plan, will, and purpose of God. Scripture answered that question for us in a number of servant songs from the prophet Isaiah, where the prophet was used by God to detail a covenant made between the three eternal persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, concerning the redemption of a particular people, concerning the redemption of a particular people. We learn that this covenant is called the covenant of redemption, the covenant of redemption. God, the father gave a mission to God, the son to take on human flesh, to become incarnate, to obey the righteous law of God perfectly and to offer up his life as a substitute 
in the place of sinners. God the Son was elected as a federal head, or, as we talked about last week, a representative for a particular people, the elect of God. God the Son would represent a particular people. He would stand in their place. This people would rise or fall depending on the failure or success of their representative, God the Son. These people would be directly affected by the work of their federal head, their covenant head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We learn that God the Son was appointed as a mediating prophet, priest, and king for this elect people. As priest, he would offer up his body as a sacrifice for the people. As prophet, he would speak the words of God to the people. And as king, he would reign over that particular people given to him by God the Father. And the Father promised to help sustain the Son in his mission for that particular special people. The Son would not be left without support. The Son would not be left helpless. But he would be given the Holy Spirit without measure. As he worked to complete the mission that was given to him by the Father. These were the commitments of God the Father. All of these things originated with God the Father. God the Father obligated the Son to complete this work and promised rewards to the Son should he fulfill the mission that was given to him by the Father. What were the promises? God the Father promised a reward to the Son of resurrected eternal life should he fulfill the work given to him by the Father. God the Father promised that the Son would see the fruit of his offspring and bring many sons to glory should the Son complete his mission. God the Father promised the Son riches and honor and glory because he suffered and poured out his soul for a particular people. Many will be counted righteous, righteous because of him, Christ, and he will be rewarded and magnified, receiving a great portion as a conquering victor for his people. These are the commitments of God the Father in the covenant of redemption. And we covered many of the commitments of the Son last week as well. But this morning we will cover the commitments of the Son and the commitments of God the Holy Spirit. Number one, let us begin. The commitments... Of God the Son in the covenant of redemption. The commitments of God the Son in the covenant of redemption. Let us go back to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. I will read these verses once more. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, these are his commitments, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness of men, and being found in human form, what did he do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to what? To the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because Christ has completed his commitments, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God, the father. 
What is the, the son committing to do? The son is willingly, here is your point, the son is willingly committing or accepting the covenant of redemption. The son is willingly, not, not uh, rejecting or neglecting or refusing, but willingly accepting the covenant of redemption. We find no indication in the passage that we just read that the son is in any way, shape or form rejecting or even despising the covenant of redemption made between him and the father. Do you see that? When we read the book of Philippians, the son is willing to embrace what? Death. The son is willing to embrace what? Humiliation. Via the incarnation. The son willing to come in the flesh. He is also willingly accepting being made like you and I. The son who has eternally existed. In glory will, for the first time, take on human form, the form of a servant. The son will endure the, the persecution of mankind, those whom he has made. Think about that. The ones, the very ones whom he has made, he is willingly accepting the covenant to come and be persecuted by the ones he created. The father, son willingly accepts these things and not only persecution, but betrayal, not only betrayal, but death and not just any kind of death. The most humiliating death of that day, the cross that we see here in the first century would not be posted in a church. It was a symbol of disgrace. And the son willingly accepted that disgrace in that covenant of redemption. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not cling to his glory. He did not cling to his splendor. Nor did he reject the eternal decree of the incarnation. But he became. Think about this. God eternal. God the Son, eternal, eternally glorious, eternally perfect, becomes obedient? He accepts, willingly accepts obedience. Think about this. And to what point? Obedience to the very point of death. God the Son willingly embraced the covenant of redemption and scripture, again, is speaking to us in a somewhat anthropomorphic way. The willingness of the son to embrace the covenant of redemption, to not consider equality with God a thing to be held on to, is represented to us in human terms. What do we mean by that? There was never a time in eternity where the son had to think about whether or not he would willingly accept the covenant of redemption. But yet scripture speaks to us in ways that we can understand that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, that he did not cling on to his glory, but that he willingly accepted this covenant, becoming obedient even to the point of death. But there was never a time when Christ had to think about this, to decide or weigh his options on whether or not he should leave glory 
Christ had eternally accepted this. It was the eternal will of God. And nevertheless, we can also say truly and honestly that he willingly took this mission upon himself and obeyed truly and honestly the command of the Father. What did he obey? What was he committed to do? To become incarnate, to take on, number one, our flesh, to take on our flesh, as we said before, to take on the form of a human. He was committed to that. And to do what? In that flesh, to obey the law of nature, the moral law of God. Summarized in the Ten Commandments, the moral law is is that law which all men must obey. It is that law of nature that that we all know. How do we know the law of nature? We are created in the image of God. We all know the law of nature, the moral law, because it has been written on our hearts via being created in the image of God. The Lord Jesus Christ willingly obeyed that law of nature. Brothers and sisters, Adam God's first man, God's son, he was charged with obeying the moral law. God made a covenant with him, a covenant of works. Do not eat of this tree or you will die. Obey and you will live. God put Adam through a probationary period, a time of testing his obedience. And God allowed him to be tempted. But when tempted, Adam failed. When tempted, Adam sinned against God. He not only broke the moral law of God, he broke the covenant of works with God. He did not keep the covenant of works. And he was exiled from the Garden of Eden, the presence of God. Christ, though, Christ, the second Adam, willingly and perfectly obeyed the moral law. Was he tempted? Yes, he was tempted, tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And did he give in to that temptation? No, he did not. He perfectly obeyed the commands of God as they were a part of his commitment in the covenant of redemption. You got that? He perfectly obeyed the law of God because they were a part of his commitments in this covenant of redemption. Become incarnate. Take on their flesh. Submit to the law. And Christ did so willingly. The Lord Jesus Christ prevails where Adam fails. He conquers where Adam is defeated. He is the second Adam. He is the faithful Adam. He is the better Adam. Consider the Mosaic covenant, which also is a covenant based upon obedience. Israel, if you are obedient, you will enjoy the land. But if you are disobedient, you will be kicked out of the land. You must obey what law? The moral law, yes, but also the ceremonial law. The judicial laws. And if you don't obey these laws, you will be kicked out of the land because they are my covenant to you, says the Lord. And did they obey? No, they did not. But the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of Adam, who took on our flesh or son of Abraham, uh, who lived under the Mosaic law, lived under the Davidic covenant. Christ obeyed all of the ceremonial laws. All of the judicial laws, including the moral law, these were a part of his commitment. Are you with me? And he did so perfectly, willingly, willingly. He obeyed these laws. Christ was never 
ceremonially. You may read this in the scriptures. Christ was never ceremonially unclean. Christ never offered sacrifices for his own sins. Do you ever see that in scripture that Christ went up to offer sacrifices for his own sins? Imagine that. That of all of the community, you're the only one who's not offering sacrifices for your sins. What does that say about you? I ain't done nothing wrong. The book of Hebrews tells us that other priests offered sacrifices for their own sins and then offered sacrifices for the sins of the people. But Christ was never impure. Christ was never undefiled. He was pure morally and ceremonially. Why? Because these were the commitments of Christ or the son in the covenant of redemption. That was what he was committing to do. Obey the law. And he did so willingly. And as we'll get to in a moment, also perfectly. Christ willingly obeyed on the level of Adam's obedience. He did what Adam could not. Christ willingly obeyed in, in, on the level of Israel's obedience. And if you don't know, Israel was also referred to as a son of God. And Christ obeys on their level in the land of Canaan. Christ willingly and perfectly and obediently obeyed the covenant of redemption in every single aspect of his commitments to the law. The Lord Jesus Christ was not just commanded to be incarnate, to obey the law, but commanded also to become incarnate as what? As an Israelite. You ever think about that? That God the Father from eternity decreed that the Son would become incarnate as an Israelite. Not as a Filipino. Not as a Mexican. And every other ethnicity that we can think of. But as an Israelite. As a son of Abraham. A son of David. Born of Mary according to the flesh. Why? Why? So that what Christ obeys might be legible or understandable for us as we read the commands of God in the Old Testament of Israel. Does that make sense? What had Israel been doing all of those years in order to atone for their sins? A priest would offer a sacrifice for them. So that when Christ comes as our priest and offers himself of as a sacrifice, the people can say, that makes sense. That is what God is doing. You got that? Christ was called to obey all of these laws as an Israelite underneath the covenant of redemption. And he willingly accepted the task given to him by the Father. God the Son willingly committed himself to fulfill a covenant on our behalf. And it was a covenant of obedience. We talked about Adam's covenant. What was it called? A covenant of? Why was it called a covenant of works? Because Adam had to obey. What is Christ doing? What is he committing to do? A work. No? Amen? Amen? Is he not committing to be obedient in that work? Therefore, Christ has his own covenant of works. Because Christ 
has a work to accomplish and he must be obedient to that work. And the goal of that work is redemption, redemption of a particular people. Therefore, it is a covenant of redemption, which includes a work. When we read the servant songs of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 50, verses 5 through 7, we see that the son willingly, God the son willingly embraces the task, the difficult task of the covenant of redemption. He will be persecuted. He will be struck down. He will be beaten. There will be those who attempt to bring shame and disgrace upon him. This is according to Isaiah. With accusations. And he will not hide his face from them. Why? Because God is his help, he says in Isaiah. Isaiah 50, verse 7. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have set my face as flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. And when we read the rest of the 50th chapter of Isaiah, he says, who is my adversary? Who will declare me guilty? Asked the son. He will not be deterred from his mission. He will see it all the way to the very end. And listen again. He has done so willingly. From the father's perspective, he commits the son to this task. But from the son's perspective, he runs straight to it. From the father's perspective, he commits the son to this. But from the son's perspective, he runs straight towards it. He runs toward that mission without hesitation. And when we read the four Gospels, we see a consistent theme of the Lord Jesus Christ being determined to complete his mission. In spite of the many attempts to be deterred or distracted from that mission. And yet, he sets his face as flint. He is undeterred. He will not be moved. Herod would not be able to move him in spite of the many children that he murdered in search of the Messiah. Satan would not move him in spite of the fact that he tempted him in the wilderness. The Pharisees and the religious leaders would not be able to move him, though they persecuted and challenged him every day of his ministry. Peter, his friend, who betrayed him, but then came back, would not be able to deter him. Peter, who tried to deter, to, to deter him, never, you will not go to the cross, was not able to distract or deter Christ from his mission. Judas was not able to deter or distract the Lord Jesus Christ from his mission. Herod and Pilate, both of them together, could not distract or deter the Lord Jesus Christ from his mission. Brothers and sisters, the cross, the cross in all of its agony, pain and humiliation could not deter or distract the Lord Jesus Christ from his mission. And brothers and sisters, the tomb or the grave could not deter or keep the Lord Jesus Christ from seeing the covenant of redemption all the way to the very end. He willingly set his face as flint all the way to the cross. And he not only completed that mission willingly, but he completed that mission perfectly. Perfectly. Our Lord Jesus Christ did not only begin well, as some do, but he perfectly ended well. Completing the covenant of redemption all the way to the bittersweet end. Not just bitter, but bittersweet. Which is why he could, although in agony cry out, it is finished. Sweetly cry out, it is finished. Our redemption has been accomplished perfectly. How do we know that Christ completed the mission of the covenant of redemption perfectly? 
We know it was willingly. But how do we know that it was done perfectly? Well, what was the promise of God the Father to the Son upon his completion of the covenant of redemption? Psalm 16, the servant of the Lord or the Son of God speaking to the Father concerning his promise said upon the completion of the covenant of redemption. What does he say? I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. What is the promise? What is the promise upon completion of the perfect or perfect completion of the covenant of redemption? For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your holy one to see corruption. What is the promise? What's the promise upon perfect completion of the covenant of redemption? The promise is this. If you perfectly complete this mission, you will be raised from the dead. Your body will not see corruption. You will enjoy resurrected, eternal, glorified life for eternity. We find this confirmed all throughout the scriptures. Christ was raised from the dead. Christ was raised from the dead. How do we know that he completed the work? Christ was raised from the dead. God the Father fulfilled the promise to God the Son, raising Christ from the dead. Therefore, we can say he perfectly, not just willingly, but perfectly completed the covenant of redemption. Why? Because he now sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us eternally, and he will return. He is a glorified, eternal, eternally living Savior and conqueror. Amen. In the book of Isaiah that we read last week, we discussed at the beginning of our sermon that we saw the son was promised riches and splendor, that he would see the fruit of his labor. Many sons will be brought to glory as he finished and completed the work of the covenant of redemption. God, the father raised Christ from the dead to demonstrate the perfect completed terms of the covenant of redemption. And what does Christ say about his mission? What did the Lord Jesus Christ say? It is finished. John 19, 50, it is finished. He perfectly completed, willingly, perfectly com completed the covenant of redemption on behalf of an elect people. Peter, preaching his sermon at Pentecost, said to those who were listening, this Jesus God raised up of all that of all of this. We are witnesses being therefore exalted. At the right hand of God, having received from the Father promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out this uh, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And what is the apostle saying? You crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. You crucified the Messiah, the one that we have been waiting for. Christ went all the way to the cross, perfectly completing the task given to him by the Father. And what was the result? Peter says to those who are listening at Pentecost, God raised him up. He ascended to glory. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. He is now exalted. He obtained the promise of the Holy Spirit that he is now pouring out on you today. This is our evidence that Christ, not just willingly, but perfectly, fulfilled the covenant of redemption. It was his commitment. And the resurrection is our evidence that he fulfilled that mission brothers and sisters but that's not the end 
Those things are wonderful. Those things are glorious. And we must praise God for those things. But be very honest and frank. What does that got to do with you? What does that have to do with all of that is wonderful? All of that is glorious. What does that got to do with you? Hebrews ten twelve. But Christ had offered when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you see the result? What does the resurrection of Christ have to do with us? The Lord Jesus Christ is obedient unto death, exalted at the right hand of the Father, receives glory, splendor, and honor. And what is the result? Perfect eternal forgiveness of sins for his people. That is what Christ has won for us. That is what all that we have said concerning the commitments of Christ has to do with you. Christ wins exaltation and glory for himself and gives it to you. Christ wins forgiveness for people, for sins, and offers them to you. We will one day, sooner rather than later, and I appreciate that Brother Marcus read Revelation chapter 4, because in Revelation 5, there will be a day when we stand around the throne, and here will be our song. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To receive power and glory and wealth and wisdom, might and honor, blessing. Because Christ was slain, he is worthy of exaltation. Uh, according to his divine nature, he's always, uh, he's always deserved to receive exaltation. But according to his human nature, he earned exaltation. You got that? According to his divine nature, he is always to receive power and glory and honor. But according to his divine nature, he has earned that. He has earned that. Christ went all the way to death. True to his promise, God raised him from the dead. And God also raised you from the dead with him. That's what this has to do with you. God the Father sat Christ down at the right hand of him. And God sits you down with him. Imagine that. God the Son glorifies the Son. And he glorifies you with him. Jesus' covenant was the most difficult, the most impossible from a human perspective. And Christ fulfills it willingly and perfectly on every single lever, level at every single moment of his life. And then does what? And then offers all that he has earned to you to be received by faith. Imagine that. All that he has earned. You've done nothing. And he gives it all to you. You've earned nothing. And he gives it to you. That is a glorious commitment that Christ makes on behalf of an elect people. Praise God the Son eternally for what he has purchased, what he has earned. For rebellious, unworthy, ungrateful people. To God be the glory. Number two, and quicker. The commitments of God, the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit is admittedly not as prominent in the covenant of redemption. But he is certainly present. And the more that we look in the scriptures, the more we find him present. 
We saw last week that God the Father committed the Son to, or committed to uphold and sustain the Son. And how would he do that? How would he uphold and sustain the Son? By providing and sending the Holy Spirit to help the Lord Jesus Christ. In the servant's songs, the Father promises to send the Holy Spirit to assist and to aid the Son. Mary, as we sang earlier, and what rich theology is in some of those Christmas hymns. Mary is told that she will conceive a son. And how will she, how will she be able to conceive a son being a virgin? God the Father says the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And you will conceive a son. Christ is commanded to become incarnate, to take on his, to take flesh upon himself. And how does that incarnation happen? By the power of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew chapter 12, those who are persecuting Christ and coming against Christ claim that he is casting out demons by the power of the devil. And Christ says, the devil does not cast out the devil, but I cast out the devil by the power of what? Of whom? The Holy Spirit. In John chapter 3, Christ proclaims that he had been given the Holy Spirit without measure and that he spoke what he spoke by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews 9, we are told that Christ suffered, offered up his life by the power of the Holy Spirit. From the incarnation to the substitution, the Holy Spirit is present every step of the way to help and to assist the Son in every single step. The covenant of redemption is glorious. God the Father engaged himself on our behalf. God the Son engaged himself on our behalf. And God the Holy Spirit engaged himself on our behalf for a particular people. What the the Father has planned, the Son has accomplished and the Holy Spirit has applied for a particular people. That is their work in the covenant of redemption. Now, coming to our third and final point. There should be a question if you're thinking and if you're listening and if you're reading that should be lingering now as we come to the very end of our point of the covenant of redemption. It should be this. Is the covenant of grace the covenant of redemption? We spoke about the covenant of grace a few weeks ago. Promised in the book of Genesis chapter 3, fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament. But is the covenant of grace the same thing as the covenant of redemption? Our third point, the covenant of grace and the covenant of redemption. You may be tempted to believe that they are the same. They are not the same. The covenant of grace that we see in Genesis 3.15, promised in Genesis 3.15, is not the covenant of redemption that we have been talking about over these now past two Lord's Day Sundays. But they are related. But they are related. How? Brothers and sisters, you cannot have the covenant of grace without the covenant of redemption. What is the covenant of grace? It is that promised covenant of good news that a seed of the woman would come and once and for all crush the head of the serpent, destroying the works of the enemy. The seed is the Lord Jesus Christ who took on the flesh of man, willingly and perfectly obeyed the law of God and suffered and died in the place of a particular people. Amen. Our confession states that this was the first gospel revealed to Adam. And then by further steps, or as God continued to reveal himself in Scripture, until it was completed and fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the covenant of grace. But think about this. 
What is the covenant of grace founded upon? What is the covenant of grace founded upon? Meaning, when did the decision to send the seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, when did that take place? Where? When is the root of this promise? In John 17, the Lord Jesus Christ said that he had finished the work the Father had given for him. When did the Father give him that work? At what point in history? The Apostle Paul answers that question for us. In Ephesians chapter 1. When did God choose us? The Apostle Paul is used by God to answer by saying he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What is that choosing? What is that decision? What is the counsel that took place between God, the father, God, the son and God, the Holy Spirit that would choose a particular people? What is that? Brothers and sisters. Before anything was that is, God chose to redeem a particular people for his own glory. So then, when the work that Christ speaks of, when is the work that Christ speaks of in John chapter 17? That work that Christ had been given by the Father was given to him before the foundation of the world. In eternity, outside of time. Therefore, listen now, the foundation or the root of the covenant of grace is found before time. In the covenant of redemption made between the three eternal persons of the Godhead, that Christ would come and be a mediator of an elect people, that Christ would bring about the redemption of that elect people. Brothers and sisters, you cannot have the covenant of grace without the covenant of redemption. Our confession goes on to say in chapter seven that this first gospel or the covenant of grace that we find in Genesis 3.15 is found in that eternal covenant, the Bible says, or uh, our confession says. In that eternal transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of an elect people. Are you with me? That is the covenant of redemption. One may pause and say, hold on, hold on. Is it really important to know all these things? Can't I just know the gospel? All this talk of covenant this and covenant that, covenant theology. Do I need to know all of these things? Can't I just know the gospel? Dear ones, the covenant of grace and the covenant of redemption is the gospel. It is the gospel. It is the good news. If the covenant of grace is the trunk the covenant of redemption is the roots. This is the gospel. Know them. Know it well. And I, I think as we're talking, you're saying, that's Jesus saying the gospel. He's just it's describing the gospel. Yes. The redemption that we have, the redemption that we, jo that we enjoy, the redemption that we, we praise God for has a source. It's in God who made decisions about your redemption before you ever existed. That should cause you to fall on your face before God. How encouraging is that? Your salvation, your redemption is not an accident. 
it is eternally willed and decreed by God. Do you think about that, 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 that eternal, yes, we think about that eternal counsel between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and how deep that may be, that, that perfect communion and fellowship between the three persons of the Trinity. And they were discussing you? Oh, this is deep. This is beyond our understanding. And you are in that. You were in that. And as a result, you're here now. You're sitting here today because of that decision made in eternity before anything was that is. You are presently sitting here because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit eternally decreed and willed that you would be here. If that does not cause you to sing along with the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all ye creatures here below. Praise ye Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, then I don't know what will cause you to break out in doxology. Think about your life. All that you've experienced. All that you have endured. And you are here. Now think about those who are not here. What makes you so special? What makes you so unique that God would pull you from the ashes and he would pull you from the burning house and say, I give my grace to her. I give my grace to him. The son completed that for you. And he did so before you ever knew who you were. Before mom and dad knew who you were. He takes his rewards. His own kept covenant. With all of its blessings. All the things that he has obtained. And he gives them to you. Because he eternally willed to do so. Freely. Graciously. And mercifully. They are to be accepted by faith. Not by works. They are not to be. Okay what do I got to do? What's the catch? The catch is come and die. Come and die to you. Come and die to your own. Self-righteousness. To your own works. To your own abilities. Come and die. Take up the cross. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why all the promises in Christ are yea and amen. Yea and amen. Christ has purified us once and for all. What he has given will not be broken. It will not be resent. It will not be destroyed. And you can have confidence tonight when you lay down in your bed that your salvation was not an accident. You, you can lay down in your bed not wondering, will I lose it tomorrow? Will I give up? 
He's eternally willed to save you. And what does he say in John 17? Those who are in his hand, they will not be pried out. No one will snatch them from my hand. He is committed to that. Talk about the commitments of God the Son in this covenant of redemption. He is committed that none shall be lost. None for whom he has died shall be lost. So as we are preparing now to partake of the Lord's Supper, you can rest secure that you have gone through another Lord's Day being prepared by your elders to die and to die well. Knowing that you will not be snatched out of the hands of the Father, out of the hands of the Son. That he has secured your faith. He has secured your salvation. And he gives to you his Holy Spirit as a down payment, as a secure, secure evidence that you belong to him. Jesus' perfect obedience to all the laws will bring his people into a consummated creation. We will experience eternal life, perfect righteousness, never-ending holiness, and we will be eternally with God forever because of this covenant of redemption. To God, the Father, Son, and Spirit be glory, honor forever. Amen. Let us stand.